For those of you uh, visiting, uh, I don't usually do that. It's the first time in 12 years. So uh, it's, I don't want you to think, oh, it's one of those things where the pastor sings all the time. I don't. Uh, <clears throat> we, uh, the staff wanted to especially try to participate and help uh, and provide this uh, for Jacob today. And I'm sure Jacob is thinking, please don't give me another 10-year uh, <clears throat> <ten> thing. <laughs> okay, we are in uh, Hebrews toward the back of your Bible. If you've got your own Bible and you want to find it, you can back up from Revelation, the Johns, and Peter, and you'll find uh, Hebrews, James and Hebrews. It's uh, the passage we'll be reading is found on 1001 in the Bible that's there in your pew or chair. Just be reading four verses from chapter two. We'd like for you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to. This is the last part of the introduction. So as you look on that page, you see your one and your two and that little paragraph, that whole thing constitutes the introduction to Hebrews, and, and we want to talk about that some uh, this morning. After talking about Christ and comparing him to the angels and setting forth his glory, the pastor, as he's called by many commentators, the pastor writes this, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, we speak this morning uh, about your word itself about what you've given to us in revealing yourself to us in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see the glorious things that are said about Christ here. And, Lord, that you would rivet us with the joy as well as privilege and responsibility of being men and women of this word, men and women and boys and girls that do not neglect this word, but, Lord, meditate on it day and night that it might bear its fruit, its precious fruit in our lives. Oh, bless us to that end, we pray. Amen. Uh, the movie Aaron Brockovich, as most of you know, was based on a true story about uh, Pacific Gas and Electric Company out in California. Uh, they had a compressor station that was situated in Hinkley, California, a small town there in Southern California. And they used hexavalent chromium uh, to keep corrosion out of their watering towers. But the problem was in 
when they poured the waste out in their ponds, the ponds were unlined. And so the hexavalent chromium got into the water supply in the town of Hinckley. Now, Aaron Brockovich was just a little, in, well, not really even an intern. She had just, at least the movie says, hung on by her teeth to even get this job and have this job. And so it was this file box was dumped on her uh, desk, and he said, file these away. So as she's filing them away, she starts noting, and he says it's about a real estate thing, a pro bono real estate deal that we've got. So she's looking through this real estate with uh, Peter and Donna Jensen, Pete and Donna Jensen, and she keeps finding all these medical files there, reports of, of, of sickness and disease, multiple sicknesses in the family. And she can't figure out why this is in the report about real estate. So she gets permission and takes off and meets with... Uh, this Henson girl, uh, Donna Henson, and she hears this word chromium for the first time because Donna's trying to explain why P, G, and E wants to buy their home out of the blue. We just like to buy your home. They're so nice. And they paid for all their bills. She says it's because of the chromium. So uh, Aaron Brockovich goes to the uh, college nearby. She meets up with the professor. He says, yeah, chromium comes in many forms. Regular chromium is good for the body. Chromium three is good. It's, it's, it's fine. But chromium six, hexavalent chromium, it's deadly. It will do a host of things to the body. He says, uh, you get your information though about that water by going to, uh, the, the water, uh, treatment place, uh, the water board. I mean, so she goes to the water board, gets some records. They fax them over to PG&E. Da- these are damaging records that talk about hexavalent uh, chromium in their water. It's a girl named Brenda that faxes it. And so then suddenly it shows Ed Masry, who's the attorney that Aaron Brockovich works for, and he's fumbling with his tie. And he says, the minute Brenda sent that fax... The second she hit that send button, PG&E's claim department was on the phone to me scheduling a meeting. So she says, so you think we scared them, don't you? Well, it sure sounds like they're sitting up and taking notice until they walk in the front office. And here is a young guy wet behind the ears. Looks like he just got out of college. His suit doesn't fit right. They've sent their lowest lackey to come and speak to him. And the meeting doesn't go very well. They make a, a lame offer and they reject it. And he just walks out, Ed Masry, in a huff. He says, he's, he got it. He knew what they were doing. He's just fuming. He's, and she says, at least they made an offer. That wasn't an offer. A million would have been an offer. They sent that mail clerk to jerk me around and to waste my time. May have been an attorney, but he called him a mail clerk, Right? Shows how insignificant they thought this was. That they just sent somebody to go meet with these people. Like a little ant that you're going to flick off, right? Of course, know the rest of the story. They ended up paying $333 million to hundreds of people. Uh, The largest such settlement in U.S. history. But we take 
issue if the guy that's in charge or the important person isn't speaking. It was Steve Jobs always that spoke, and now Tim Cook at the Apple reveal, new products, etc. It's not just some hired clerk in accounting, right, who's doing a, a little temp job. Once you go out there and tell them about the new product, no, it's Jobs or Cook. And for the presidential annual State of the Union address, it's not given by a staff person. It's given by the president. You, would, you know you're going to hear from the president himself speaking himself. It cannot be delegated. And that is what this introduction is all about. From chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 4. Who did God send to speak to us? Who did God send to speak to us? And as he begins this sermon, he says, first, there were prophets. And he includes the whole Old Testament in this term. All the people through whom God gave the Old Testament revelation. But the most important revelation was that which was given at Mount Sinai with Moses. Because everything else in the Bible, the whole history of the Bible, was founded upon that law. And whether they obeyed or disobeyed that law. All the poetry of the Bible is founded on that law. Confined and informed by that law. The prophets' promises and judgments were based upon that law. Mount Sinai controls everything. And in giving the law to Moses and Mount Sinai, angels were the mediators between God and Moses. In Deuteronomy 33 and Psalm 68, uh, angels are associated with Mount Sinai. And in Stephen's speech in Acts 7 to all the Jews who were about to stone him, he speaks of an angel who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. And later says, you received the law as delivered by angels and you did not keep it. And Paul in Galatians 3 speaks of the law being put into place through angels. And this was especially important among the Greek-speaking Jews from which this congregation had come. It was a very important doctrine because angel involvement demonstrated the majesty and the reality and the faithfulness of that revelation. It came by angels. It underscored the uniqueness and importance of that revelation. So you see, when they're facing persecution as Christians... And the likelihood of having their possessions taken away or even facing death. And they have the option of abandoning that and sliding back into Judaism. Part of their thinking is, hey, also, this gospel came to us through men. Moses got it through angels. So it can't be that bad that we would abandon and go back to this. After all, it's an angelic Uh, revelation. And that's why the pastor begins this sermon saying, long ago, God spoke to the prophets, but now he's spoken in his son. Look who he sent. That's the point. 
He sent prophets. The same God, though, that sent prophets has now sent his son and spoken in his son. See, later in the movie, when things start heating up for PG&E, they do send three seasoned attorneys to Ed Mazur's office because now things are serious and they're stepping up the ante. Look who they're sending now because it's important. And that's what the pastor is saying. Okay, he spoke to the prophets. He spoke through the angels, but now he sent his son. He's spoken in his son. Maybe even in those first verses of chapter one, after he mentions the prophets, he knew how quickly his hearers would be thinking, okay, prophets, but what about the angels that spoke to Moses? What about them? And that's why in verse four, it seems to us out of the blue, but that's why he suddenly says, having become as much superior to angels. Because for us, it's like, why does he happen to meet angels? And then he talks the rest of the chapter about the angels. You know, he compares them in verse 5 to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. Or he compares in verse 7 of the angels, he says this, but of the son, he says this, your throne, O God, is forever. And then in verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand. And you see, it's all to this point in chapter 2 where he says, verse 2, if the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation that's come through his son? And so here's the whole introduction. And notice the very first application In Hebrews, it's chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, since God has now spoken through his son, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard in this son. So, if the message declared by angels was so important and disobedience to that message was dealt with so severely, what will neglect, what will happen to us if we neglect this great salvation revealed in the Lord himself who came in person, who came in the flesh. What will happen if you and I neglect that word? That's the question that the pastor puts before these hearers and he puts before us as well. Who's more important from PG&E? A young guy working in his first job with no experience or three seasoned attorneys who've been on the legal battlefield for decades? Who's more important? Angels who are part of the creation, servants of God's people, or the very son of God who, as he said in chapter one, created all things, who laid the foundation of the earth at the beginning and who carries all things forward to their final purpose and who will in the end roll it all up like a scroll and transform it. Who is the radiance of the father, whose throne is forever, whose years are forever, who came in the flesh and made pure. Purification of sins. Will you listen to him? Will you? Will you take him seriously? Therefore, 
we must pay much closer attention. Notice, lest we drift away from it. It's a nautical term of a ship losing anchor and just drifting off away. And that's the tendency that we all have to drift away. If not just openly disavowing Christ, drifting away from a passion to know him, drifting away from an eagerness and a joy in these things, drifting away from a discipline to know him in the word. Really, this is the same as hold fast your hope, which is the theme. It's, it's don't lose your anchor, which is the picture on the front of our, our bulletin. Don't lose the only anchor you have. And you can't go back to the former anchor, the Old Testament, because all of that was based and and anticipated the coming of Christ. It was about Christ. If you take away Christ, this is nothing. You have nothing. Because it all depended upon and pointed to Jesus Christ. You know, Christ's words were the same in Matthew 11 when uh, he, he said, you know, if, if, if I had come, if what you see had appeared in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. But you're not repenting. Or if it had appeared at Tyre and Sidon, you know, Jezebel's home, pouring in all of the wickedness of the Baals and the Asherah into Israel through Jezebel. If, if what you see had been there, they would have repented. And then those words of Christ to the very towns he had visited. It will be worse for you than for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah. Because you heard, you saw it and you rejected it. And it's easy sometimes to think that because this is a message of grace. And because it's a message of salvation. That it's not as serious as it was in the Old Testament. You do see that the writer is not making that argument. He's not saying, you know, in the Old Testament, it was, it was reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. <laughs> but now it's grace. It's not his argument. It's the opposite argument. You see the terrible judgments, the terrible Punishments that occurred. What will happen when a far greater thing has appeared and we reject it? He said it would be far worse. Calvin talks about the, the value or the, the, the glory of the one who reveals uh, or who comes uh, makes the punishment all that more severe if we would reject it. And he underscores that it came from the Lord. He says it was attested. That word means it was guaranteed to us by those who heard. And God himself bore witness by signs and wonders. God comes alongside as they are speaking. And he gives these signs and wonders to validate, to certify that these are, that this is the genuine word of God. Paul talks about this in Romans 15 and 2 Corinthians 11. He even says in 2 Corinthians 11 that the true signs of an apostle, and he uses these words, were, um, were 
attached to my ministry to demonstrate that this really is the word of God. In fact, it's interesting in uh, Acts 14.3, it says, They remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. There's the Lord bearing witness to his word of grace by giving these signs. You see, he's just underscoring the importance of this. It came in the sun, and when it came to us through men, it wasn't just angels. It was God himself testifying. It was God himself who appeared in the flesh, and God himself who testified of the reality. And isn't it wonderful that he says, he doesn't just say, how we, shall we escape if we neglect such a great word, but such a great salvation because it's a word of salvation it's a word of rescue it's a word of grace and forgiveness of ultimate sacrifice on the part of this god of god harnessing the unlimited divine resources of of his being to rescue sinners imagine 45 miners trapped And then a cruise of hundreds at the loss of many lives and many more injured, exhausted, hungry themselves, separated from their families for days, finally break through and some of the miners refuse to come. Refuse to come. It's the foolishness of their own danger that they're going to die, but then... To spit upon what was done for you. The sacrifice of lives to come and rescue you. And that's the feel here. What will it be if we neglect so great a salvation? And brothers and sisters, you know, we, I don't know if you're like me. I I wonder when you hear what. Many people have gone through and some in our own midst who've come from other countries. One couple that joined this morning and the suffering that they've gone through because of their stand for Christ. You wonder sometimes, would I stand? Would I be faithful to that word? And we have to ask ourselves, if I don't... I'm not holding on to his word now in comfort. Like if I don't have a passion for it and, and it means everything to me and I'm seeking it out and in the many ways that I can in this church body. And the only thing I'm losing now is entertainment, maybe, you know, less time on the TV. What's going to happen when the chips are down? What's going to happen when it would cost my life? Am I suddenly going to hold on to the word and it's going to be real valuable to me? Probably not. If you easily jettison God's word and it's in the periphery of your life now, guess what? When the chips are down, it's going to be thrown overboard. Because it really doesn't matter. So we have to ask, do we believe in the satisfaction and the fulfillment of this word, the enrichment and the happiness of this word? 
do we believe those things? Like someone that says, the one who meditates day and night will be like a tree planted by rivers of water. that produces its fruit. You know, John Piper, in his talking about uh, faith in Christ and conversion, because faith and belief sometimes is such a cheap word, he put out the idea that a person is converted when Christ becomes his or her treasure. That's conversion. When Christ becomes not perfectly, not always, we, we drift in many ways. It's, it's difficult. It's the hardest thing to keep him as treasure. But that's what conversion is. That's what changes is that the God I didn't care about now, I have an ultimate concern for. An ultimate concern for this Christ. And the same desire for Christ, the same desire for God, becomes my desire for his word. You can see this in Psalms. Psalm 42 says, uh, like a deer pants after water brooks, so my heart pants after you, O God. But then you get to Psalm 119, verse 131. He says, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. And you'll see that the same expressions of desire, the same expressions of joy are the the same with God or the word. Why is that? Because the word is an encounter with God. It is discovery of God, exploration of God, a sustained meditation on the beauty of God. And to seek one is to seek the other. That's why the language is so Similar. The Cobbles years ago gave me one of my favorite cards. It says on the front, and God made chocolate. And you open it up and it says, and it was very good. (laughs) We all say amen, right? So let's say you love chocolate. You wake up in the morning, you're thinking about chocolate. You go to bed thinking about chocolate that you ate that day and thinking about the chocolate you'll eat tomorrow. You make plans for what kind of chocolate it will be. So let me ask this question. What kind of ice cream do you like? Chocolate ice cream. Chocolate fudge ice cream with chocolate chips and chocolate syrup poured over. That's what kind of chocolate ice cream I like. What kind of cookies do you like? Chocolate chip cookies. No, no, no. Chocolate fudge cookies with chocolate chips and chocolate syrup poured over them, right? Chocolate. What kind of cake? What kind of pie? What kind of milkshake? You see, you want the cake because it's chocolate cake. And like Jesus in Luke 24 He took them through the whole of Scripture, the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, and he showed them everywhere where he was to be found in that word. If we love Christ, we will want the word where he is. He is the chocolate that we go to bed thinking about, we wake up thinking about. And we want to be around 
believers and believers conversations and believers Bible studies and Sunday school classes and and one on one because we're getting something more of Jesus because he's our chocolate. We're reading some of the elders uh, reading a book that Ryan recommended and gave us uh, actually by Rankin Wilburn. And he has a great, he has many great illustrations, but one of the illustrations has to do with sailing. He's talking here about the means of grace, prayer and the word and worship. I want to focus obviously on the word, but he uses the phrase to... He talks about the wind, of course, as Jesus says, the wind blows where it wills. You can't control the wind, but you can catch the wind with your sail. And there's a term called drawing the sail, drawing the sail so that the sail fills up with wind, balloons out, catches the wind. You see, when you get in the word, You are lining your sail up. You're drawing the sail to catch the wind of the glory and beauty and power and tenderness of Jesus Christ. And it's not just external to you, but as you catch that wind, as you study him, you grow in your worship, you grow in your love, you grow in your likeness, you grow in how you treat other people. Because your wind, your sail is catching the wind of Christ. And all the more, you see, we must pay much closer attention lest we drift away from it. Lest our sails are not drawn. Brothers and sisters, your sails are meant to be drawn daily, all the time, as much as possible. So that in all of your work and all of your responsibilities at home and community and, and, and work where you make money. Uh, you're to have the wind of Christ in it. Sometimes we go to the Bible, you know, when we're in trouble, but it's a preventive food. It, it's like I've been told. Uh, we were we told this in Africa and Burkina Faso and other places, uh, if you're thirsty, you've already waited too long. You're not supposed to get thirsty. You're supposed to stay hydrated. Stay hydrated. Keep the tree planted by the rivers of water. Let your sail catch this wind. There's a gushing fountain. Go and drink. Eat your necessary food. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, what a word has been given to us in Christ. And he didn't just speak it. He accomplished it. It is the, the revelation of the God who is a saving God. It's the revelation of a God who sacrifices for his people. A God who comes in the flesh. A God who bears our punishment. A God-man who is raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of God above all power and authority. Who has wrought a salvation that he offers freely to anybody who will come. Oh Lord, what a revelation of yourself. 
We pray that you would forgive us as we even confessed our sin earlier as a congregation. We confess, Lord, that many times it is not sweeter than honey. Many times it is not more precious than gold. Many times we prove ourselves, Lord, not to be true lovers of Jesus. Because we don't want to find more of you. We don't want to hear more of you. Oh, Lord, forgive us. And thank you that you do forgive us. Thank you that we are cleansed in the blood of Christ. Thank you that we are accepted in him even when we fail so miserably. Thank you, Lord, that it doesn't depend on how good we are, but it depends on how good Christ is. That Christ has taken away our sins. That Christ is our standing with you. And that in that acceptance and in that love, in that grace, under your smile, under your favor, we can renew our effort. We can renew by your spirit our love and passion for your word. Bless us, Lord, to that end. That truly the word of Christ will dwell richly in our lives. Amen.